the body is accumulating the excess fat. It can be obvious under the skin, that's the subcutaneous fat, or it could be around the organs or even in the organs, uh, such as in the liver. And then fat builds up around or even within the organs, that's when it becomes more damaging. So This is Healthy Starts Early, a podcast about eating healthy as a family. I am your host, Sarah Rusing, founder of the Phoebe app and passionate advocate of healthy eating at home. A quick disclaimer, our content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a healthcare advice. If you have any concerns over the health and well-being of your child, please contact your GP or health visitor. Now let's enjoy the next episode. Today, I've got the great pleasure to speak to Professor Michael Gorin. Michael is a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and the University of Southern California. Dr. Gorin also serves as a co-director of the University of Southern California Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. And Dr. Gorin is a native to Glasgow in Scotland, and he received his PhD from the University of Manchester in the UK prior to post-doctoral training in the US. His research has been continuously funded by the National Institutes of Health in the US and other foundations for the past 35 years. Dr. Gorin's latest book, Sugarproof Kids, which was co-authored by Emily Ventura, an expert in nutrition education and recipe development, was published in 2020. The book aims to help raise healthy kids in today's high sugar food environment to teach them to self-regulate sugar intake and enjoy good food and good health for years to come. So, Michael, let me start with a very simple question that many of our listeners probably also might have. Why is eating whole fruits healthier than drinking fruit juice or a smoothie if it's made from 100% fruit? Yeah, it's a great place to start. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me on and for that introduction. And you know this is one of the probably one of the trickier points because it gets a little confusing and complicated, and um, it's all to do with not just the amount of sugar, but the rate at which it's absorbed and the types of sugars. So, for example, when when we eat a piece of fruit. Uh, There's there certainly the fruit sugars in there, but they are slowly released because they're wrapped up inside the cell wall amongst all the fiber and there's all the other phytonutrients that you get along with the apple. So if you were, to, let's say, to eat an apple, you might be getting, let's say, five to 10 grams of sugar, but it's slowly released. Whereas a glass of apple juice, even if it's 100% fresh squeezed juice, the sugars are released, there's no fiber, there's no phytonutrients, so you've thrown away all of the, the healthy benefits of the, of the apple, and it's, it's rapidly absorbed. Also, in a glass of apple juice, you have the sugars from about probably three apples, uh, so nobody's really eating three apples all at once. 
but you can easily liberate the juice from three apples and drink it all at once. And so it's three times as much sugar and it's rapidly absorbed. And that rapid absorption turns out to be very important because when you have that rapid absorption, uh, there is uh, most of the sugars and it's mostly the fructose, which is the most abundant sugar in the fruit. It's, con it's taken up by the liver where it's converted to fat and can cause inflammatory reactions. Whereas if we now flip back to the apple scenario, it's not only less sugar, but more, more slowly released. And under those conditions, the, the body, is, the gut, is able to convert some of that fructose into glucose and use it for energy. But that doesn't get that process gets easily overwhelmed when the sugars are rapidly absorbed. And in that case, we're not using the, the fructose for energy directly. We're converting it to fat. And that process really triggers a lot of negative outcomes. And um, that's fundamentally the difference between eating an apple and drinking the juice from an apple. The other part of your question was the smoothie. And the smoothie is somewhat in, in between. Uh, and smoothies are um, probably a lot more... Um, beneficial because you get the whole fruit which is blended so you don't toss away the fiber uh, or the other phytonutrients you still get uh, the fiber um, with with the fruit coming in so it slows down that release some people might argue that the shredding of a smoothie might shred those fibers into smaller more readily easily digested carbohydrates but um, the evidence for that is less clear, and clearly it's very different from the juice where you literally like throw the fiber away. That's very interesting because I, I um, do nearly all my home baking with dried fruit or banana or apple. And obviously I, in some of the recipes, I just chop the fruit and in some of them I actually blend it. So I'm, I'm actually quite interested to hear, you know, you just said that there's not a lot of research that says that shredded or blended um, fruit um, might release the sugar faster. So um, am I actually still getting a benefit by using, although it's blended fruit, or could I also use sugar because I'm kind of destroying the cell wall and I'm destroying the fiber that helps releasing the sugar slower to the body? Well, if you can use the whole fruit, that's definitely more beneficial because you are getting the benefit of the whole fruit, all of the, the nutrients are still there, the fiber is still there, maybe shred it a little bit, um, <clears throat> but also obviously it's less processed. You also get the flavor of the whole fruit, which is which is nice. And all the recipes that we use in Sugarproof that we developed use that exact same strategy of using uh, whole fruits, even if it's a dried fruit, using that as a sweetener Some people may say, well, there's still sugars in in the banana or the date, and that's true, but there's also all the other great things in the banana or the fruit, and all the recipes that we develop, and I'm sure your recipes too, are probably at the end of the day got less sugar in them than an equivalent uh, that would be made with with the uh, with just sugar. 
I'm also very interested in the effects you said, you know, the the body makes basically fat out of the sugar, but not all effects of eating a lot of sugar are visible to the eye. So you can have a child that is very active and looks very healthy from the outside. It's not looking bigger than it should be for the age that it is, but it still has a diet high in sugar. So what does the inside of a child look like that On the outside, it looks healthy and, you know, you couldn't tell whether it's raised on a non-sugar diet or on a sugar diet. But what does the child look like from the inside? Do they look different from the inside, the children? Well, sometimes it can happen. There, there's this um, concept called, the, 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 there's a, a different, there's different subtypes of, of, of increased body weight. One is called the TOFI. It's an acronym T-O-F-I, which means thin on the outside and fat on the inside. And it really all depends on, and everybody's different, it depends on where the body is accumulating the excess fat. It can be obvious under the skin, that's the subcutaneous fat, or it could be around the organs or even in the organs, uh, such as in the liver. And when fat builds up around or even within the organs, that's when it becomes more damaging. So the analogy I like to use is the car. You could have a great looking car, but it might not be running very well. You have to, to really know if your great looking car is running well, you have to look under the hood or in the, you know, in the engine, as, as you say in the UK. Uh, so, I mean, the opposite could be true too. You could have a, you know, a rundown looking car that looks terrible on the outside, but it runs very well. So, It all depends on what's happening inside the body, metabolically, where fat is being stored, what the meta metabolic profile is. We have to look beyond weight. Unfortunately, our, we have these very heavy cultural, social norms around focused on weight, but a lot of the metabolic issues are not directly correlated with weight necessarily. Often they are, but sometimes they're not. And how would that show in a child or in a person? Well, that would show that would show with you know things like blood screens. You know, when when we when when I want to get a checkup, I go get my blood tested, looking for high cholesterol levels or blood sugar levels, um, liver enzyme levels, those types of uh, typical clinical panel tests that, that we do. The same is happening in kids. It might not be as elevated as we would see in adults, but you can still get a read on metabolically what's happening. Those aren't as common, so obviously not as feasible in younger children. So it's not always uh, easy to do. Uh, so um, that's why it doesn't, it's, it's not something that seems, seems obvious or natural. And you mentioned in your book that sugar can have multiple effects on a growing body from the obvious weight gain that we just said, um, poor health, poor oral health and the risk of uh, chronic disease, especially in the long run later on in life. And then you also mentioned behavior and how well a child might do at school. So I just wondered if there have been any large scale studies, especially on the last two points on health, mental health, um, and how well children are doing at school in relation to the diet that they eat? 
Yeah, the the literature is actually pretty pretty thin on this topic. We 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 reviewed as much much of it as we could find in the book, which wasn't a lot. Uh, but one of the one of the biggest studies was a study in Australia uh, from several years ago that looked at several thousand kids and looked at relationships between their habitual diet and their academic test scores, and and showed a negative uh, relationships. So kids who were consuming more sugar, sugars had lower test scores. I mean, that doesn't, you know, these types of studies are hard to interpret. They don't, it doesn't show cause and effect. It's just, it's just, it's just a correlation or an association. So it's really hard to, to tease it out. And the same is true for um, mental health issues um, like ADHD uh, for example, there's no there's there's actually very few there's well I don't think there's any studies that show a clear mechanistic link between sugar and mental health conditions in childhood, but there are many studies that show that reducing sugars can improve symptoms as uh, as part of the treatment scenario. So. I can't tell you definitively that there's a cause and effect relationship for mental health, but certainly there is a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. Back in the day, sugar was not so much of an issue as it is today. I think people focused more on fat rather than sugar not so long ago. And I assume that is because we just didn't consume so much sugar or it was more of a, you know, for special occasion thing. And is it also because the sugars that are used today are just different to what was used, um, let's say, 30, 40 years ago in the condiments that we ate? I think all of the above are, are, part, are true. Um, I think you hit on a couple of important points there. So number one, yeah, we are consuming more sugar. That's true. Um, but it's also different types of sugar. It's, it used to be that most sugar was just ordinary table sugar, or which is sucrose. Now there's over 200 different names for sugar uh, that, that, that can exist in different, different types, which have different effects on, on the body. And really, yeah, I mean, you're right, the pendulum has swung uh, between fat and sugar. And, you know, historically, when we were all kind of brainwashed into thinking low-fat food was the way uh, forward. The food industry actually at the time was, and there's pretty good concrete evidence to show this, that there was suppression of evidence linking high sugar to um, to these kind of metabolic and me mental health problems, which the food industry was trying to cover up because they were promoting low-fat diets. And when that shift happened, When you take fat out of foods, you have to add some flavor back, and that usually was in the form of some type of sweetener, some type of sugar. Uh, so 70% of processed foods have some type of added sugar. Uh, but the food industry was suppressing the evidence to say that adding the sugar back would be problematic. And now we've unearthed that evidence as well as a whole range of new studies that have shown pretty strong relationships between sugar in the diet and, and all of these problems, whether it's physical health or mental health. So there's a lot of things happening, all the ones that have made it very complicated, 
with the net sum being that more sugars in more foods, different types of sugar, and it's affecting different parts of the body. Let me take a quick break and tell you about our great app Phoebe that gives you all the inspiration for cooking healthy food for your family. Phoebe is currently free to use, so make sure you get it today. The link is in the show notes. And if you find this episode helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help more parents discover it. Now let's get back to our episode. What types of sugar can manufacturers hide on the label? And do different countries have different rules for those? Yeah, I think the rules are a little different in different countries for sure, and even in terms of what how sugars are um, named and referred to. Uh, certainly, food labeling is different. And in the U.S., for example, we do have a new rule that says that food companies have to list added sugars. So here we're getting into a differentiation between Let's say you have a pot of yogurt, for example. There's going to be some sugar in there from the from the milk, from the dairy. That's that's not added sugar. That's the natural sugar in the dairy. And then there will be added sugar, a sweetener added of any type of variety. So those added sugars have to be differentiated, but also now we have to be, be a little bit of a food detective and look at the ingredient list as well. It's not just about the food label. And in the U.S., the ingredient list has to be listed in the order of most abundant ingredient in that particular item. And so it used to be you would just look for sugar as the number one or number two item. But now what the food industry is doing with these 200 different names, they can uh, use multiple types of sugars and use use multiple sugars in a food so that they can put them in lower down in the ingredient list so that you might not see them at first pass. And, and they can also use other names like organic brown rice syrup or mango juice puree or evaporated grape juice. Things like sound fairly uh, healthy and have a very healthy ring about them, but They're really just they're really just not very not that different from sugar. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, now that we're talking about different kinds of sugar, I know many people they use agave syrup or they use maple syrup, um, coconut sugars, all of these kind of new healthier ways of sweetening recipes. What's the research on that? I mean, are we really doing ourselves a favor by using these, or are they just as bad as just ordinary sugar? They're all a little different. Um, so agave is uh, you know, it, it, it is fairly popular. It's very sweet. The reason it's very sweet is it's it's ninety percent uh, fructose and fructose. Going back, let me rewind a little bit. So sucrose, the most common form of sugar, is a fructose molecule connected to a glucose molecule. That's called a disaccharide. The glucose is used for energy. The fructose is the one that can go to the liver and be converted to fat. So, And it's much sweeter. So fructose is twice as sweet as glucose. So the syrup from the agave plant, most of it, most agave is 90% fructose. And so that can be an issue with um, 
with agave syrup. Maple syrup and coconut sugar, they, they would come under the, you know, under, under the definition of a more preferred added sugar. So I certainly have those in my own pantry and would use them in cooking, partly because they are both less processed. And coconut sugar, for example, has a little bit of fiber in there that can slow down the glycemic response, and it's a more sustainable crop than, than uh, sugar cane. Uh, raw honey would be another one, uh, less processed, um, other, you know, some beneficial nutrients in the fiber and in, in, in real maple syrup, not the fake syrups that you can get in the grocery store. So there's definitely a hierarchy. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say is that this is not to say that I would never use sugar. I would just try to use less of it. So, and, and for the most part, if a recipe calls for a cup of sugar, for example, you could easily reduce that to three quarters of a cup or even half a cup and still get the, the same type of baking consistency or cooking consistency. So it's, this is not an all or nothing thing. This is just to say that there are more. There are some sugars that are a bit more healthier, a bit more beneficial, and you can easily just use less of it and get a big advantage right there. So you don't have to give up all sugars and go keto just to get, you know, just to get the benefits of sugar reduction. And what is your view on low calorie and low sugar products? I mean, there's so many, you know, um, sports drinks. Um, Coca-Cola Zero, just to name that, for example. What happens with these drinks or with foods that say they have no added sugar, but yet they're sweet, so they have artificial sugars? How unhealthy are they really? Because for me, just by gut feeling, I feel that this is this must be so unhealthy because it's not real. If I have sugar, I you know I'd rather have proper sugar and know that this is sugar that I'm consuming. So what what is happening there? <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you say this is your gut feeling because a lot of a lot of the issues are in the gut uh, with these sweeteners uh, that can affect gut health. But um, just more generally, before I get into the more uh, specifics of it, so the, there are at least in the U.S. I'm seeing a lot of products that are sometimes advertised as sugar-free, but they have sweeteners in it, even natural sweeteners like stevia or monk fruit. It's getting complicated because now there's just dozens of these different types of sweeteners that could be used, and they're all they all taste a little different and they all act a little differently in the body. Um, but in my view, they are all somewhat problematic uh, for multiple different reasons that I'll uh, try and reel off. Um, but before I get into the specifics, I would just say that. I'm with you. I would say, why add a sweetener? I would just use less sugar to begin with um, and try and work with that. But the issues are, well, a lot of them affect the gut, the gut microbiome. And the reason is because the reason they're sugar-free or calorie-free is because they're not absorbed. If you eat something and it's calorie-free, that just means that 
it's not absorbed by the body and converted into energy. So where does it go? It 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 just it doesn't disappear. It gets stuck in the gut. Um, gut microbiome. Gut microbes can chew it up and digest it and produce chemicals into the body and can change the composition of the gut microbiome and that can affect your gut health. Those types of studies have been shown. That's number one. Uh, number two is the there's this. Um, there's this issue that they kind of trick the body because they still they may be calorie free in you know on paper, but they they still activate the sweet taste receptor, right? If you drink a, a diet soda, it still tastes sweet, which means it's activated a receptor in your tongue, and those those sweet receptors exist not just in your tongue but throughout the body. And when the body senses that sweet taste, one of the things it does, it sends a message to the rest of the body to say that sugar is coming in. Those receptors don't know the difference between ordinary sugar and an alternative sweetener like Splenda or monk food. It doesn't matter. It's People say, well, stevia is natural. It must be okay. It doesn't matter where it came from. It's still activating the same receptor that says sugar's coming in. And when the body gets that message that sugar's coming in, what's it going to do? It's going to withdraw sugar from, from the blood because it thinks there's a surplus coming in. And when it draws it out, what's going to happen is your blood sugar will go down. And when your blood sugar goes down, you'll know it because you feel cranky and hungry and you start wanting to eat food. And the studies have shown this, they verified this, that children or adults who habitually consume sweeteners end up consuming more calories throughout the day. It's a reverse effect, so it's not what you wanted it to do, but it's actually making you consume more food at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, and either that's because you're lulled into this false sense of security, like if you had a box of sugar-free cookies, maybe you would eat two or three or four. Whereas if it was a regular cookie that you made, maybe you'd just eat one and be satisfied. So uh, plus it's, if you make it yourself, it's probably going to taste better. So it's all about, so taste is important too. And, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the other issue with the sweeteners is They all taste different. They all and and for most people, not everybody. Some people don't mind the taste, but most people uh, find that find that, that they taste have an unpleasant taste. So to me, it seems that it's all about reading and understanding food labels. Um, I'm just you know quite an idealistic person, so I'm thinking, could you know the answer to the to the food industry? kind of disaster that's going on at the moment that we're being fed so much sugar without without actually understanding this could an educational system or initiative be the answer for this that we teach children and teach the population how to read labels and to under really understand what is sugar what you know what's listed on there on the ingredient list and also How do you think you can spread your message, apart from this amazing book that you wrote? How can we really infiltrate um, 
the whole world to make people understand that sugar is bad if you consume it too much? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so I, you know that's what we're trying to do with the book and with with these interviews and all the other things that we're doing to promote the message to help consumers understand. And I think we've been lulled into kind of accepting uh, whatever the food industry does as being okay for us. But we have to really think about what we're ingesting, what the different chemicals are, how they're affecting the body, short and long term. Usually these things aren't a one-off thing, so there's cumulative effects over time in the same way that we're affected by air pollution or other chemical exposures. These are chemicals that are put in our food. So, you know, we wouldn't just blindly start ingesting chemicals without knowing what they were doing to our body, but because it's in food, there's this natural belief that it must be okay. Um, I think that's, we need to think a bit more about what is actually in the food that we're eating and how it's affecting the body. We've for, for too long been too focused on calories. So it's, this is not just about calories. It's really like how, how are things affecting the body? What's it doing to us metabolically? And I don't know, I'm accepting invitations to go on podcasts and Instagram lives and everything I can to help spread this message, but it's still, you know, it's nowhere near enough. So we need, we need a, we need a bigger movement and I'm not exactly sure how to, how to do that beyond continuing to do what I'm doing. What, 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 what do you think we need to do? I'm actually currently speaking to the school that my daughter is going to, and I will actually do um, a workshop after the summer on sugar and on, you know, on, on healthy eating. So that's kind of my little, <laughs> my little quiet revolution, but Yeah, that's a good, it's a good place to start. I think the schools are good. I mean, I would, I've been, I just asked a few weeks ago to do a similar talk um, at a school and maybe, maybe we need to develop like a little curriculum for schools or a little package that we could send to schools. I'd love to get a copy of the book into the schools, but maybe it needs more than just the book. I think so. I think it needs more than a book. And I also think that in order to really make a change with children, it can't be a one-off session. I think, like you say, it has to be integrated into the curriculum. And children just need to be aware constantly and need to be reminded to read the labels. So I think it, you know, you need to run sessions throughout the year to really make a change, I think. And children are thirsty to learn and they want to do things right. So I think, yeah, starting with schools... Um, It's the way forward. I don't know. Sugar-proof kids for children, maybe. <laughs> Next edition. Well, that, I mean, that's what the book's really all about. It's, um, it's targeting parents and teachers to help transmit the knowledge to the kids. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to hear from you as well, you know, that, that this seems to be something that we have to start as a revolution, people that are passionate about it to talk and educate about sugar? That's, that's the goal, for sure. Well, what, what's next for you after this book? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I didn't, the book came out, well, it was almost two years ago now, September 2020, right? You know, in the first 
six to eight months of the pandemic. So we've been doing a lot of this promotion in the world of Zoom and podcasts and things like that. But I, I didn't realize, I mean, I'm happy, I'm great, to ha- happy and um, appreciative to have these opportunities to talk about the book. Is there going to be another book? I don't know. I think as we just talked about, there's enough to still talk about to, to, to really make this um, take off and make it make it um, second instinct to families and schools and children. So we're doing that. So I'm still continuing that effort as best I can. Um, Research-wise, I'm always busy. We're just uh, you know th- this this is my my second job. Uh, my full-time job is a research scientist. So we're still continuing with the studies. We have new studies. At various stages of initiation, about to finish, we're just launching a brand new center for Latino health. It's one of the things we're very focused on is understanding why certain segments of the population are more vulnerable to some of these effects that we're talking about. And Latinos are very vulnerable to uh, poor dietary outcomes, higher levels of obesity and diabetes and liver disease. So with funding from the government, we're launching a brand new center to focus on that. Well, I wish you best of luck um, with the new center. And um, yeah, maybe we can have the opportunity to speak to you in a couple of months' time. I'd love to check in to you know, see how it's going on your end. And maybe I can report back to you on how the, the workshops are going at the school. <laughs> I'd love to hear about that. And uh, we'll, you know, anytime you want to... Do this again, Sarah. Happy to jump on a call. It's with that's one big benefit of having these type of opportunities. We can do it pretty much, you know, at the drop of a hat. Uh, just put it on the schedule for half an hour and get it done. So thank you for 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 doing that and helping us get the message out there. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure, my pleasure. Good luck. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Make sure you download our app, which provides free recipes and weaning tips for families with young children. Look for Phoebe on the App Store. That's P-H-O-E-B-E. And if you found this episode helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help more parents discover it. That's it for today. Bye.